Now, kids, you might want to, the next time that your parent decides to discipline you and gives you some sort of a consequence, you might want to say, Mom, I'd like to appeal. I would highly suggest that. And for the record, if you, if you were my child, I would let you do this. I allow the appeal system. However, I do require that it's submitted in writing. So, you know, depending on how your penmanship is and how much you like writing, you may not want to take me up on that. But ask them, hey, I want to appeal here. Let, let, me, let me tell you what I was going through. I don't think your judgment was actually just. Now, one of the main reasons that we receive discipline, why we, why we receive consequences, whether you're a child or an adult, whether it's your parent or your boss or someone in law enforcement or God himself, the reason why we get consequences and why we, we're disciplined is to teach and correct us But also, the idea is that change comes about so that we don't repeat our error. This is why some of the best parents I see, they don't just uh, snap back and and tell a child, you did, you know, this is now what's going to happen to you. They explain, this is what you did. This is why it was inappropriate or, or not allowed under these circumstances. This is why it's harmful. And here's how we're going to correct it. And here's what I'd like you to do in the future. Now, we don't see a lot about that in this story. And I think if we put ourselves in the shoes of Moses and Aaron, this can be one of those stories that makes us feel a little bit frustrated. We can feel a little bit ripped off on behalf of Aaron and Moses. What did they really do wrong? What was so bad about what they did? Was it because Moses just decided to hit the rock? Was that what this was all about? I'm guessing that many of you have come across a time in your life where you feel like you received unjust punishment. Now, this might surprise you, but there's been a few times in my life where I've received a consequence. Now, there's one story that came up to my mind earlier this week where I felt like this was complete injustice. I was given a traffic ticket uh, probably when I was in my early 20s or late teens. Now, that's pretty normal, right? People get speeding tickets. They roll through a stop sign. But I got a traffic ticket for jaywalking. For jaywalking. Now, kids, if you don't know what jaywalking is, I don't even know if that's the official term of it, but basically it's illegally crossing the street. It's when you decide just to cross in front of the road like 99% of the people do every single day of the week here in this area. So you're really only supposed to cross when there's a marked crosswalk or when you're at an intersection and the light goes off. In my situation, it was a a very, very non-busy street, You can hear my justifications already, can't you? (laughs) And instead, I learned this from my mother. Here's excuse number two. Instead of waiting for the pedestrian sign to change, I always follow the traffic pattern. Because if the light's green and you happen to walk up three seconds later, you push the button, you don't get to walk, do you? No. You have to wait for the whole cycle to go around, and then you get, you know, the white-figured man who comes out, and, or, you know, the, the hand, and the, now they have numbers that count down and tweeting music and all this stuff. And so I always just follow the light. So I get up there, and I see, oh, it's a green light. Everyone's going straight. As long as no one turns right into me, safe. So I walk through the crosswalk, and there's a police officer waiting there for me, and he gives me a jaywalking ticket. Now, I did my best to explain my circumstances in a respectful manner, but I was frustrated. So I get this ticket, and you know what I did? I appealed. I wrote a letter, and I said, this is why this is unjust. This is why this should not have happened. And they cut my ticket in half. 
Sometimes it pays to appeal. I'm pretty sure that in the system, if you submit any sort of writing, they cut it in half. But in any case, as a youngster, I thought, man, maybe I should go to law school. I've, 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 I had great rationale here. This is absolutely amazing. But all of us have gotten in trouble at some point in our life, right? All of us have received a consequence. All of us have been punished. All of us have had some sort of privilege taken away from us. And I'm sure there's been at least one point in your life where you thought, what? That's not fair. Why did that happen? That person didn't understand what I was going through. This, this punishment doesn't fit the crime. And I find that when this happens, when we feel like we've been treated unjustly, it's not so much just the treatment or the punishment that we say, that's not fair. We actually relate that to the person who gave us that sentence. So, if your mother gives you a consequence you don't deserve, it's not just the decision that's unfair. Your mom is unfair. She's not fair. And if your teacher gives you an unfair consequence, your teacher is no longer your favorite teacher, is he? And if your boss penalizes you or puts you on probation or says you have to redo an assignment, they're no longer your favorite boss. And you probably have a little bit more tendency to speak poorly about them behind his or her back. If someone in law enforcement, like in my situation, if they treat you unfairly, the tendency is that everyone in that, in that institution, the law, everyone is out to get you. They're all unjust. And so it's very easy to harbor a grudge or to feel like you're the victim. Whenever we receive an unjust consequence, it's natural for us to think poorly about the person who we think treated us unfairly. Whenever we feel like we've been treated unjustly, it's quite natural and easy for us to think poorly about the person who treated us unfairly. And there's a hint of that in this story. Maybe that's a little bit of how Aaron felt and Moses felt. Maybe that's how we feel when we put ourselves in their shoes and think, wait a second, is God really fair in this story? This doesn't feel like their punishment fits the crime. Now, we don't know for sure if Moses and Aaron said to each other or even to God, hey, this isn't fair. We don't know if they thought that God wasn't be, being unfair, but certainly we can think for ourselves whether we thought he was unfair, especially when we put ourselves in their shoes. Now, we need to remember that this story is about Moses and Aaron. This isn't me and you. You know, these aren't just kind of your, your average people. Sure, they're people just like me and you, but this is Moses and Aaron. Like, Moses is the pinnacle in a sense. He's, he's sort of regarded as the greatest leader of the Israelites. This was a man who met with God. He learns God's name. A burning bush appears to him. This is a man who leads the people out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea, all through God's power, of course, but he's the spokesman for God. And Aaron's not that shabby either. I mean, not only is, is he Moses' brother, but Moses says, you know, God, I don't really, I'm not a great speaker. And so Aaron becomes his translator, his spokesperson to the people. And Aaron himself is the high priest, a high, the highest ranking official in the religious system. So these are huge icons. I mean, Moses himself, he met with God so many times that his face was shining bright, literally. And he had, to, he had to wear a veil just so the people didn't hurt themselves when they looked at him. That's how set apart and holy he was. So if God isn't 
fair to these guys. I mean, what sort of hope do we have? If he doesn't kind of say, you know what, guys, you didn't do a great job there, but we'll just kind of sweep the dirt under the rug because you're Moses and Aaron after all, and just keep on going. I know you'd like to lead these people into the promised land, so we'll just forget about that. I mean, if he's not fair to Moses and Aaron, how can we expect him to be fair to us? Well, sometimes it can be really hard to imagine some of these stories back in the Old Testament books because, frankly, you know, we don't know a whole lot about Moses and Aaron. I've never been to the desert of Zin. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what this rock looked like or what Moses' staff looked like or how many people were there. And so sometimes I think it became really helpful to envision what this stuff looked like. Now, a lot of Bible stories have been made into movies, and whenever a a movie is played about one of these stories, all of us become very critical. Well, that doesn't look right. That wasn't how it was, but none of us really know for sure. And so this morning, I think maybe we can be creative, and let's pretend for a moment that we're directing this story. And so as directors, we have the ability to say, you know what, I want to begin with this scene, and then we'll do a flashback to this scene, and I want an actor who's really good at this, and I want her facial expression to communicate this, and then I'm going to add a couple of lines here and forget about that part, and in the process of doing that, we actually get a sense for figuring out what's going on in this story, and it might help us better understand where Moses and Aaron went wrong. Now, if this story was a comedy, if we decided, you know, let's, let's get a few laughs out of our audience here, and we'll, we'll cast it for that, of course. If it was a comedy, I would probably start with the road map. You know how some of these, especially in these cartoons, uh, they show the map of the people going in different directions, and this would be perfect. I mean, it's laughable what the Israelites have done at this point. Uh, they begin going southeast. They go from Egypt down to Mount Sinai. Then they go north up to the southern edge of the Promised Land, and then they turn around and they go in the opposite direction again, and they wander around in circles for a while, and now they're going north again right to the direction of the Promised Land. That'd be a great way to start it if we were directing it. If, if we wanted to say, no, let's make this more serious and more dramatic, maybe we should cast it as a tragedy. And if we were doing it that way, then I think we'd start with the funeral scene. Miriam, Aaron and Moses' sister, she dies. And so maybe we could just show the backs of the people. And maybe we'd, we'd show Aaron, who, who's much better at speaking than Moses, and maybe he's kind of very quietly and solemnly talking about his sister, a memory maybe of them growing up. And then we could show Moses right next to him, who isn't doing anything, just staring at the ground, staring at the ground. And then maybe if we really wanted to be dramatic, we could focus on a single tear. We'd have to have an actor who's good at crying here. A single tear that would just kind of go down his cheek And then it would drop, slow motion, of course, drop, drop, drop. And we'd make Moses a big man, so he'd be at least 6'4 or so, so further distance for this tear to drop, all the way down, and then it would hit the ground. And then the focus would be on the ground, because the ground is dry and and brittle, because it hasn't rained. They're out in the middle of the desert, right? And you get a sense of, wow, it's dry and hot. And this would then prepare everyone for the, fact, the problem of the story, these people are thirsty. I mean, maybe that's a good way that we could do it. Or maybe, maybe we should, instead of going to the immediate scene of this story, we should do a flashback. I love flashbacks. So we start the movie, but then we do a flashback back to Exodus 17, and we tell the first part of this story, because there's a story almost exactly like this, where Moses draws water out of this rock. 
Now, this is going to be my staff for the morning. And in that story, when we do a flashback, these are different people. This is the second generation here in in Numbers 20. But in Exodus 17, it's kind of like their parents. They've already died off because of their disobedience, because they didn't believe God would do what he said he would do. So in this scene, the people, they're bickering, they're complaining, they're thirsty. And and Aaron and Moses, they go and they meet with God. It's it's very similar to, to what we have in this story. And so because it's a flashback, we'd have to make Moses look a little bit younger. Maybe his beard's a little shorter, not quite so white. We'd take a little bit of the weathering out of his face. But his eyes probably look the same, right? a little frustrated, disappointed, maybe a little angry. And so then Moses, he'll lead the elders, just as God tells him. He'll lead the elders off towards this rock, and he'll take his staff, and he'll hit the rock, and then we'll leave it for our special effects guy. You know, water will come spewing out, and then, and then the little wavy lines will go on the screen, and we'll come back to present day. And maybe we'll focus on Moses, and now his beard's longer, and he looks a little bit older. And we'd all figure out, aha, this has happened before. Now, I'm realizing, though, that we might be getting a little bit too far ahead of ourselves because we don't know if this is a comedy yet or a tragedy. We don't know if we should have a flashback. So maybe we should actually just go through the story a little bit and make sure that that we don't get too far ahead of ourselves because if we do that, we may end up telling a story that isn't really part of the story we find here in the Bible. Now, one of the biggest challenges that we face in trying to write this script is we need to figure out how Moses and Aaron are reacting in this story. We need to find out what sort of emotion they feel and and what sort of disappointment they display. And really, we can't know this for sure because, well, their emotion is a little bit debatable depending on how you look at the story. But we know one thing at the beginning of the story, and that is the people are thirsty. There's no question about how the story begins. They want drinking water. They're parched. They're tired. They're complaining. And even though they're probably exhausted because it's hot and they're thirsty, they have some pretty sharp words for Moses and Aaron. And so this is what they say. They say, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring us here to die along with our animals? This place is terrible. There's no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates. There isn't even any water to drink. Now, this point's clear in our story. We can capture this. But the next part's tricky because in the Bible here, in Numbers 20, we find out that Moses and Aaron leave this group of people who are verbally attacking them And they go and they meet with God. They go to the tent of meeting. And that is where God dwelled. That's where they communicated with God. But what we don't know is we don't know how they leave. We don't know if they jump up and they sprint away from those people because they fear for their lives. Uh, We're not quite sure if they kind of slump their shoulders and they walk away dejectedly. Maybe, if it was me probably, I would backpedal. Just in case someone's throwing a rock, I'd have a split second to dodge it or, or deflect it. But in any case... They get to the tent of meeting, and the story tells us they fall down on their faces. And and when they do that, they speak with the Lord. Now again, if we're looking at the emotion of Aaron and Moses, I think one of the things that we'd want to capture is fear. They're fearful because of what's going on. The people are restless, they're angry, they're thirsty. And Moses and Aaron, they don't have an idea of what they're going to do yet. 
But these, but these leaders are also fearful because they're meeting with God himself. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. This is the God that rescued them out of Egypt. This is the God that so far has shown himself capable of doing anything and everything for them. And so there's this healthy sense of fear. And then we'd have God speak. Now, my guess is collectively we would decide together, let's give God a deep, booming voice. But we'd really have no reason why to come to that decision, right? There's nothing in the story that tells us that. Even though I, I would strongly suggest that we don't ask Gilbert Gottfried to be our voice of God. Um, kids, he's, he's the one that, that was the, the voice of the bird in Aladdin. And so I think we probably want something a little bit less annoying. And so personally, if I could choose anyone, I'd go with James Earl Jones here. This would be my God voice. But I'm guessing if we were really directing this, this movie, we'd get tons of calls from Morgan Freeman's agent because for whatever reason, he has a monopoly on the God voice business right now. So he's probably our God voice. He's, he's probably the one who is speaking at this time. And what God says is really important to this story. It's not only important because God is speaking, It's not only important because God is now going to tell Moses and Aaron exactly what to do, and this is going to solve the problem of the story. It's important because what God tells Moses and Aaron to do and what Moses and Aaron actually do are different. And so this is going to tell us the contrast in the story. So God tells Moses to take the staff. Take the staff, which is actually ambiguous. We don't know for sure if it's Aaron's staff or Moses' staff. Now, we can hire someone to do a whole bunch of research on that. Personally, I think it's Moses' staff. So because I get to speak right now, we're going to say it's Moses' staff. So he says, take the staff, and, and then he says, and gather the people together. And we know very clearly this is exactly what Moses and Aaron do. And then he says, go to the rock. Now, again, we don't know what rock this is. This is actually really interesting to me. There's no question about what this rock is. God says that rock, Moses and Aaron know what rock it is. The people don't get lost on the way. And when the people all gather together, it seems like all of them can see the rock. So, so far, so good. Moses, Aaron, people, staff, rock, everything is going well. And then God tells Moses, he says, speak to that rock before their eyes, meaning the people, and it, the rock, will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So we're all clear on what's going on here? In case you haven't figured it out, this is our rock. This is our rock. God tells Moses and Aaron, speak to it, and water's going to come out. Now, I need, my, I need my assistant, Jared, to come forward. Even though this is our sedentary rock, we have a live rock here as well. So, Jared, you come up. You take your position because we're going to demonstrate with incredible accuracy what happened here in the story. So, this is what happens, actually. <laughs> Moses doesn't follow what Jesus, or excuse me, what God says exactly. He says, listen, you rebels. Must we bring water out of this rock? And then he raises his arm and he strikes the rock once and twice and water comes gushing forward. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That's perfect. Miraculous event here. 
on a Sunday morning. Now, the people get water, right? You guys got water, right? But all is not well in the story. All is not well because there's a cost for them having their thirst quench. And the cost is Moses and Aaron. God says to them, here's his consequence, here's his judgment to them. Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I give them. So if we were to use parenting language here, God basically says you've lost a privilege. The calling of Moses and the calling of Aaron was to be leaders of this group and to lead them successfully into this land that God had promised to give them. And God has said, because you disobeyed, the consequence of you not trusting me, of you not obeying me, is you can no longer do this. I'm not going to let you lead the people into this land. But what did they actually do wrong? I mean, what did they do wrong? Does this punishment really fit the crime? Now, lots of people think that the crime, this is the traditional interpretation, the crime was that Moses took this staff and he struck the rock. He gripped that staff like he was a baseball player with two strikes on him, and he just ripped, ripped that staff right at the rock. That's what a lot of people think, and it makes sense, too, because when you look at what God says to him, he doesn't say, hit the rock. He says, speak to the rock. But the challenging part about interpreting it this way is there's many other stories where Moses does strike things with his staff. It seems to be that the staff is his striking instrument. When you think about the the first plague of, of Egypt, Moses takes his staff and he strikes the Nile, and it turns into blood. Later on, he has the staff when they're leaving Egypt, crossing the Red Sea. We don't know for sure if he struck the water, but the indication is he probably did strike the water because he did many miracles with this staff. It was kind of his instrument of God's power. And this earlier story, our flashback story, Exodus 17, what does he do? He strikes the rock. So it doesn't necessarily seem that striking the rock is the big problem. The other big problem, if we say that's the sin of Moses, is that he struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to the rock, is that this definitely makes Moses guilty, but what about Aaron? Aaron gets the same consequence as Moses, and for all we know, Aaron's just sitting there with his hands in his pockets, watching Moses as he beats up a rock with his stick. So it seems to be a little bit more than just this fact of whether he was going to speak to this rock or strike the rock. One commentator I was reading earlier this week says it seems like the situation was more not speaking to the rock, but speaking about the rock. It's almost like God is telling Moses and Aaron, your objective here when you speak is to make it about the rock. Make sure you speak about the rock and not speak about something else. And this something else that God must have been referring to is their own emotion, their own disappointment, the own situation going on with the people. But Moses doesn't do this. Instead, his words are spoken. And these are the same words that Aaron would have repeated to the people. Because remember, Aaron's the one that's, that's rebroadcasting these statements to the people. 
And if we look at the words, those seem to be the key points of this story because it means, it means that both Moses and Aaron are responsible for them. Moses is the one who originally says them, and Aaron, as the interpreter, as a translator, as a spokesperson of Moses, he's also just as guilty himself because instead of saying, wait a second, Moses, uh, maybe we should think twice about what you want to say here to the people, he repeats the words as well. And the challenge with this story is that they use a rhetorical question. And rhetorical questions are always a little bit tricky. Now, kids, here's another word for you to learn. Rhetorical question or rhetorical statement. It's a question in which the speaker actually doesn't want an answer to. That's what a rhetorical question is. It's used to create a statement or an effect without actually wanting an answer to. So kids, I'm guessing some of you have heard these from your parents. Parents are great at asking rhetorical questions. They might have asked you this week, Sophie, are you still awake? Or they might be saying, Charlie, you aren't eating another cookie, are you? Or they might be saying, Logan, have you finished your chores? Now, in each of those instances, the parent already knows the answer to that. But it's given to kind of remind the listener, oh, oh, yeah, wait a second. I did it this own week with my son. I remember saying that. Hudson, you aren't drinking bath water, are you? I knew what he was doing. Boy, are you sharing your toys with your sister? Again, I knew exactly what he was and wasn't doing. I knew the answers to all of these questions, but I was looking for a response. Or excuse me, I wasn't looking for a response. I was looking for the effect of, of the, the question that I asked. Because rhetorical questions are used to produce an effect, not an answer. And this is what Moses does. He's not looking for an answer. He's looking to teach the people a lesson. And so he starts by calling them a name. A very mature thing to do. This is Moses, the great leader of Israel. But the first thing that he does is he throws out an insult. Listen up, you rebels. Come on, you faithless people. Listen to what I'm going to say. And we get the sense that Moses is kind of like a kid who doesn't have much self-control in this situation. He's just sort of raging in a bit of a fury. He's throwing his own pity party. And then he asks this key question, and it begins with the word must. Must we bring water out of this rock? Now, notice he says we. Must we do this? Who is he talking about? Most people would say, well, he's talking about Aaron, right? They're brothers. They're speaking together. They've done all these things together. Do we have to do this? You know, Moses and Aaron, do we need to do this? When we think closer to the story, and remember, as, as directors of this movie, we have to figure this out. Is Moses really together right next to Aaron, and, and is he kind of speaking, and Aaron's repeating, and they're talking about themselves, or is there something else going on? It seems to be that when Moses says, we, he's actually saying, I, Moses, as well as God. Because that's what he does time and time again. This is Moses who met with God and got the Ten Commandments, communicated them to the people. This is Moses who is called and commissioned to be the spokesman for God. This is Moses who has this staff in his hand, right? I've got the miracle worker here. God's empowered me to speak to you and to do things. And this is Moses who, just the scene earlier, he and his brother were in the tent of meeting, meeting with God. And when that happened, it usually meant there's a message coming from the God of Israel. And so he says, shall we do this? Must we 
do this. Now, the challenge here is that this word must can have multiple meanings in the original Hebrew. This verb means a number of things. In most of our Bibles, the translation that's used is probably must, but it can also mean can or shall or should. And when you think about those three different words, even though to me they kind of all seem to mean the same thing, if you look at what they actually mean, it changes the scenario a little bit. Moses and Aaron could be saying, can we get water out of this rock? Whenever you say the word can, it talks about capability, right? It's an age-old joke of kids. Can I go to the bathroom? I don't know, can you? Can is associated with capability. So Moses might, might be saying, are we capable? Do you think that I, Moses, and God are really able to get water out of this rock? Or they could be emphasizing requirement. Shall we bring you water out of this rock? Do you think this is our duty to you? Do you think we have to do this? Or thirdly, should. Should we give you water out of this rock? Do you think we're willing to do this? Do you think you deserve it? Do you think we'd like to give you water? Now, whatever question is implied here, whatever word you substitute for that verb, can, shall, or should, when you think about the rhetorical question, the natural response of the people is no. Can we get water out of this rock? No. Should we get water? Shall I give you water out of this rock? No. Do you guys think you deserve water out of this rock? No. Now, I suppose it's possible that Moses could be doing something very different. Maybe he's giving off a rally cry. Hey, can we get water out of this rock? Yeah! And everyone's just so excited. But if that was the case, what would have been wrong? Why would God have been displeased by that? Simply because he called the people rebels? Well, his judgment doesn't say anything about being harsh to the people. It says trusting him. So what seems to be happening in the story, even though it's hard for us to believe, because this is Moses and Aaron, faithful leaders, they actually seem to doubt that God's actually going to bring water out of this rock. It's very clear that they do something wrong here. And it seems to be that they're actually doubting what God is going to do here. And another reason why it seems like there's doubt is because they hit the rock not one time, but two times. Almost as if to prove the fact that nothing's going to come out. Moses seemed to strike things once in the past. This is what the work of God is going to do. Bang. There it is. In this case, it's almost like he says, hey, you bunch of rebels. What, do you think we should give you some rock? Huh? Do you want some water? Nothing's happening, right? Oh, wait. God chooses to act and water comes bursting forth. It seems that that is how God looks at the situation and why he is displeased with both Moses and Aaron. Now, the name of God, the name of God that is revealed to Moses at the burning bush is a repeated form of the verb to be. Most of us understand it as God saying, I am who I am, which is very confusing, right? Who explains things with a double form of the same verb? But it's just as accurate to read his name as I will be who I will be, or I will be who I am, 
or I am who I will be. What does all that confusing multiple verbiage mean? It means God is present. God is here. God was there. God will be there. God is amongst us. God is living. God is active. God is capable. God can be trusted. You can be in the middle of nowhere with no hope of drinking water, and if God is with you, all things are possible. This seems to be what God wanted the people to know. Remember, this is the second generation. Their parents have already shown themselves to be without faith and to be disobedient. And now it seems like God is wanting to communicate His name and His presence to this next generation. Maybe it's a bit of a test. Maybe the whole reason this whole story comes about is because God simply wants to show these people who He is. To let them know, I am here, I am present, I will be who I will be, and I will lead you to this land that I have promised you to. Maybe this generation will be a little bit different. But the scene at the rock is clouded by the words of Moses and Aaron. Their words don't lift up the name of God. Their words don't proclaim, this is Yahweh. He is who he is. He is who he will be. He will protect us. He will provide for us. Instead, it's a different message. It's a message of doubt. It's a, it's a message of inflicting some, some poor words and of ridiculing the people. And so because Moses and Aaron respond this way, they don't get the privilege of leading the people into the promised land. They'll suffer the same fate as their generation did, the people's parents did. They will not get to go. The leaders are treated no differently than the others. Trusting God is a requirement of following God. Trusting God is a requirement for others to lead people to God. And Moses and Aaron failed to trust God at the rock in front of all the people. Now, this story is a sad story. It really is a sad story. And I think if we were directing this story, this is maybe the feeling that we would like to evoke in this movie. This, this sense of kind of heavy emotion. When you think about the number of, of short stories that are within this chapter, all of them are quite emotional. It begins with the death of Miriam. This is Moses' and Aaron's sister. She was a leader as well. It begins with this death scene at the beginning of the chapter. At the end of the chapter, it ends with another death scene. Aaron, who receives his consequence and, and he then is said goodbye to, he dies. In the middle of the story, there's another sad story. The people, they want to take a shortcut. They're trying to get where they want to go, and, and so they send a letter to the Edenites, who were the kind of a distant relative of Israel, and they say, hey, can we pass through your land? And the Edomites say, no, you can't. Ouch. Another big disappointment. There's a lot of emotion in this story, and I think it's fo- important to focus on this emotion because Moses and Aaron have been through a lot. An entire generation of grumbling people aimless wandering, disobedient followers, revolts against their leadership, the death of their sister. Now, we don't know for sure why Moses and Aaron acted the way that they did. But, regardless of why they disobeyed, the story is clear is that they did disobey. And one of the things we can learn from this story is that there's really no excuse for disobedience. At least, there's no valid excuse for one. 
I mean, it doesn't matter if you're here this morning and you're 8 years old or you're 31 years old or you're 55 years old. This is something that you really need to hear. No excuse is a valid excuse for disobeying. No excuse is a valid excuse for disobeying. I mean, when I read the story, that's one of the first things that I think. Oh, man, Moses and Aaron got ripped off. All this, all this time of faithful serving. And you know what? Maybe they just had a bad day. Maybe it was a bit rough. Maybe they were hot and tired. Maybe some of them said some really cruel things to Moses and Aaron. And so, yeah, they acted out of anger or disappointment or, or they just didn't trust God in the moment. Or maybe they thought, you know, the people don't really deserve any of this, so this is how they acted. But at the end of the day, no excuse is a valid excuse for disobeying. Moses and Aaron may have, may have had some excuses. They may have had some really good excuses in their minds. Maybe they were grieving. Maybe they were just hot and tired. Boy, I do not act well when I'm hot and tired. You can ask my wife about that. Maybe they felt irritated and angry. Uh, maybe they felt like they were just shuffling their feet and wasting time. I mean, they were wandering around the desert at this point almost 40 years. Can you imagine that? Doing the same thing for 40 years and never accomplishing your goal? They had a lot of excuses, but no excuse is a valid excuse for disobeying. What sort of excuses do you make? What sort of excuses do you tell yourself when you choose to disobey? An excuse that many children use, which has also fallen into adulthood, is casting blame. She started it! He started that fight. You know who started things in this story? The people, right? The people started complaining. The people got thirsty. The people started questioning what was going to happen. No excuse is a valid excuse for disobeying. What about the excuse of, I can't stand him though. Ah, oh, but she's just the worst. I bet there's probably a few people in that group of people that Moses and Aaron would have said, yeah, they're the worst too. Maybe they aren't quite as bad as your ex-spouse. Maybe they aren't quite as misunderstood and as angry and as frustrating as your boss. Maybe they aren't as mean as the neighbor kid down the road. Regardless of the situation, no excuse is a good excuse for disobeying. We're good with coming up with all sorts of excuses. I'm just treating her like she's treating me. Well, nobody's perfect. I just couldn't help myself. Just one of my weak areas. I just couldn't help myself. It's really not that big of a deal. When you think about it, it's just kind of a, a small sin. It's not that big of a deal. Well, you know, she really shouldn't be that sensitive. It's not really my fault. It's her fault for responding in that way. Well, what he doesn't know isn't going to hurt him. No excuse is a good excuse for disobeying. And when we disobey, there are consequences. This is how life works. God is a gracious God. God is a forgiving God. God is a just God. But there are still consequences for doing something wrong. And that's what Moses and Aaron receive. The consequence actually fits perfectly with the distrust that they showed in that story. So what should we do? 
What should you and I do as a result of this story? Well, God tells Moses that it's a trust issue. Their lack of trust is what gets them in trouble. And trust is linked to obedience. Obedience is one of the clearest signs of trust that we know of. If you trust your parents, if you truly trust your parents, chances are you'll do what they say. If you don't trust God, there's a good chance that you'll choose not to obey him. Because why would you if you don't trust him? Trusting God means that we believe what God tells us to do is actually the best thing for us to do. Not what the situation might tell us to do. Not what our feelings might lead us to do. Not even what other people might want us to do. But trusting God is what God would have us do. It's acting out of obedience. And it begins with trust, and that leads to obedience. So the question I want to leave you with today as we prepare to sing a couple of songs and listen to the Lord through prayer is do you trust God enough to do what he says? Do you really trust God enough to do what he says? Hey, maybe you're in a situation right now where you know what God wants you to do, but you're really not sure if you want to do it. Will you trust God enough to do what he says? Will you trust God to be who he says he is. Our band's going to lead us through a couple of songs at this point, and these are songs that speak about trusting God. When we trust God, we're much more likely to obey. When we fail to trust God, we fail to obey. And we almost always try to justify our disobedience with some type of excuse. But no excuse is a valid excuse for disobeying. Let's pray. Lord God, the truth of this story is that you are still faithful. Despite the sins of leaders, despite the the bickering and the quarreling of people, you're still present, you're still powerful, you still provide people with everything that they need. And Lord, while we are fallen people and while we're sinful people, we know that your desire for us is to grow, to be people who are consistently more obedient and more responsive to your voice. And so, God, I ask that your spirit would speak to us now, that if we are in the habit of making the same excuse over and over again, that you would reveal that to us, you would name that, and that we would confess our sin, knowing that you are faithful and just to restore us. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness to speak with others, to pray with others who are willing to help us. And Lord, most of all, we pray that we would learn to trust you and to follow you with obedience. Amen.